Amen. All right. How many guys remember last week with John Frith? Remember that? Get ready for this one, Bobby. You ready? Here we go. All right. Even though this man was considered to be the third man of the Reformation, okay, behind Martin Luther and John Calvin, he was simply now called the forgotten reformer, the forgotten reformer. And it didn't always start out that way. He was born in Switzerland in 1484. He was the son of a mayor. And later he was educated at various universities. And in 1506, he was even ordained as a priest. But like many others of his day, like Martin Luther and others, okay, once he began to read the Bible for himself, and that's where it all starts, isn't it? Okay, he not only got saved himself, but he became totally appalled at the plethora of false teachings coming from the Roman Catholic Church. And so he too, just like Martin Luther, began to publish his objections or theses to the various abuses of the Catholic Church. Things as adoration to saints, praying to dead people, telling people that you can have your sins forgiven if you just give money to the Catholic Church. Still goes on today. Well, as you might uh, suspect, the Catholic Church didn't like this, okay? So what'd they do? Well, hey, that's right. Uh, they decided they were going to put a stop to this guy and disseminating the truth there. And so first they ordered him to stop preaching, but that didn't work. Uh, then they told everybody they could that this guy is a heretic, but that didn't work either. And I'm not kidding this. Listen to this. In 1531, they actually came to this man's town with an army, a Catholic army to forcibly get him and the whole town to renounce their biblical beliefs in Jesus Christ and submit to the Catholic Church. Well, when the fight was over, the Catholics were searching all the dead bodies and looting them, and that's when they found this man. He was wounded, yet still alive. But when he wouldn't confess to a Catholic priest, they took this as a sign he was a Protestant. And so they thrust him through the sword and killed him. But not before this one man single-handedly submitted the fires of the Reformation and freedom throughout all of Switzerland by simply ingraining this phrase into the minds of the people over and over and over again. If you get one thing right, you got to get this. And here was his phrase, the Bible is the truth and anything not in the Bible is not the truth. The man's name, of course, Ulrich Zwingli. Yeah, sure you did. Next week's sermon's online, and you better be there. But no, <laughs> Ulrich Zwingli, okay? Now you know why he's called the forgotten reformer, okay? Unfortunately so. But how many guys would say, one guy, wouldn't it be cool if God could use you, literally use you, to equip people to literally affect the whole country, just one Christian? That was Ulrich Zwingli. How many guys would say, now that is a life worth living for, amen? Yeah, exactly. But once again, folks, we've been seeing the theme. Here's the problem. What are we doing today as Christians? Most of us today, we read the Bible in one hand, take a look at our life in the other, and we're going, man, there is a serious disconnect here. How come it isn't matching up? Okay, how come these people like Ulrich Zwingli uh, get to have this amazing walk with Jesus Christ? One guy gets to be used of God to affect the course of a nation, man. That's awesome. That's not happening with me. I don't have this life worth living for. I got a life worth giving up. Okay, if we're honest with ourselves. But once again, this is the great news. That kind of life is available to every single Christian. Once again, for the sake of repetition, because why? It increases remembrance. Turn to somebody and say, hey, that means you. All two of you, thank you for participating for today. And that's why we're going to continue to study a life worth living for. And what we're doing is taking a look at the different things, the pivotal biblical truths that I think we got to understand if we're going to have those life worth living for. Being used of Jesus to do amazing things like Ulrich Zwingli. Now, we saw the first six times. The first key was experiencing God's joy. Why? Because have you noticed we live in a joyless world? So something as simple as you and I as Christians experiencing God's joy, being joyful wherever we go on a consistent basis, whoo, it's like a moth to a flame. What's the world say? Hey, can I have that? 
Where'd you get that? And we get to tell them about Jesus. But that's just half of it. The second key we saw the last 14 times was experiencing God's peace. The scripture's clear. Jesus said it. I didn't. That he's not only given us his joy, he's given us his peace. Why? Because we live not only in a joyless world, we live in, especially in the last days. Have you noticed it's heating up? A little bit of war, stuff going on, maybe with Syria and Russia. And what's that? Ezekiel 38, 38. Whoa! I mean, things are all kinds of messed up, right? And so what's our world doing? They're freaking out. Ah, they're peaceless. And hearing you and I, a Christian... We show up on the scene with joy and peace. Oh, we're, we don't have our heads in the sand. We know what's going on, but we know who wins. And we're part of the winning team. We have joy, we have peace. Woo-hoo. Talk about a great witness, right? The enemy knows this. He knows it too well. So he tricks us into short-circuiting that joy and the peace. And the last time, the last four times, we saw the sixth way he does that is by getting us to have a misplaced understanding. And specifically of the phrase that Jesus says, here's all you got to do if you want to live a life without worry. I didn't say Jesus did. Not just today, but tomorrow. And how many tomorrows God gives you? How many guys would like to live a life without worry ever again? It's in the Bible. I didn't say it. Matthew 6, Jesus. And he says, here's all you got to do, right? Just seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And then what? There it is. You get it. What's the problem? We have a misplaced understanding. We don't know what that Christianese phrase means. Seek God's kingdom. That's what I, what's it mean? I don't know. What's it mean to seek his righteousness? I don't know. And so we began to break it down so we could do this, okay? And there we saw that God's kingdom, his righteousness, simply means that he controls all things. He has the ability to do all things when it comes to meeting our needs. He knows and orders all things. And last time's hello, he's good. And because God is good, that's his character. I didn't say it, he did. Repeatedly in the scripture, that means he makes good of how many things? All things. And when the scripture says you have an absolute knowledge of this, when you stop running from that incredible truth. Your circumstances may not change. And it may be a challenge. But God is good. Therefore, life is good. And I may not see it now. But if you were here last week when the spirit of Kelvis came up here, I don't understand how this thing of butter works god it doesn't look good to me i don't understand this cup of flour but you don't you just trust god sure enough he's gonna bring out a pancake something good okay something good why because he's good he makes good of all things i didn't say isn't that wonderful news and you don't have to worry okay but that's all the seventh and final way at least on this peace section that the enemy tricks us into not experiencing God's peace, even though he's already given it to us, is by having a misplaced posture. Oh, Jim, my back. Oh, oh. Now, you wish, probably here in a little bit, that I was talking about a back problem. Okay, but I'm not. I'm actually going to be talking about a heart problem. And this heart problem is a spiritual uh, posture problem. Okay, say that five times real fast, other than Ulrich Zwingli. Okay, Uh, but listen, it's going to mess you up, man. I'm telling you, ten times worse than a back pain all the days of your life. Okay? And here's what it is. You see, it's one thing. This is what I've learned. It's one thing. We spent four weeks on this aspect. It's one thing to sit here and go, okay, I get it, Pastor Billy. I know now. It's all clear. Christianese right out the window. I know what God's kingdom and God's righteousness is, so I can seek that out. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to submit to it and live it out, isn't it? 
It's one thing to know, it's another thing to do. And this is what I'm born. You can know in your head all day long all kinds of great theological concepts. You can bust through the Christianese. You can know in your head all day long. You can know that, yeah, praise God, God knows all things. He can do all things. He orders all things. And he, he makes good of all things. Woohoo! And five seconds later, you're in la-la land. Because you don't live it out. Listen, you don't submit to it. And believe it or not, folks, when we resist, this is, not, I, this is God's truth, not mine. When we resist this, when we refuse to submit to, what's the scripture say about God's will? His good, perfect, and pleasing will. As if God wouldn't know what he's doing. We saw that last week, or last time, okay? Every single move you take until you submit to this incredible truth, Christian, is going to be a painful one. Listen, even though God's doing great things, you'll miss it. And it has nothing to do with God that he's leaving you hanging high and dry. It has to do with your attitude. You refuse to submit to the truth. Listen, I don't get it right now, but listen, God is good. And he's promised he's going to work this together for good. I don't see the pancake now, but I know it's coming. It's still cooking, apparently. I wish it'd hurry up, but I know it's coming. But what we do is we say, no. Oh, we might go for a little while in our circumstance, but then we get all stiff. No. It's got to happen now. It's got to happen my way. And did you know the Israelites did the same thing? And did you know God had an incredible Hebrew word for that attitude that you don't want to do? It's called stiff-necked. Turn to somebody and say, don't be stiff-necked. Okay? And especially don't do that as hard as I just did on my head. I think I'm going to see the chiropractor. Uh, but don't take my word for it. Let's listen at one example in the scripture of a stiff neck posture towards the will of God. Do not emulate this. Bad example. Bad example alert. Okay, Exodus 32 is our opening text. Let's take a look at that. Exodus 32. And uh, let's take a look at what's going on here with the Israelites, right? And, and, and this, I don't think, is really hard, right? Sometimes you say, well, God's asked me to do something. It's so hard. Well, if anything, this one's easy, Okay. The, the context is you turn there, the Israelites, are, God brought them out of Egypt. It's a great thing, right? It's awesome. It's incredible. He's doing all kinds of miracles. He took care of Pharaoh's army and all that stuff and, and doing the, the pillar, the cloud and fire and the, the manna and feeding them supernaturally. Their clothes didn't wear out. It's just, it's just phenomenal stuff God's doing right and left. And then they get into uh, the Mount there, Sinai, and Moses is going up to get the Ten Commandments from God, right? And all God said, here's their tough command from God, Wait. Oh. oh, that's all they had to do. Just wait. Enjoy my peace, my provision. All you got to do is wait. But no. Here's how it went, right? Uh, Exodus, here's this, 32. It says this, now when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down the mountain, I mean, come on, how's this long going to take? Right? They gathered around Aaron and says, come, make us gods. Who will go before us? As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And Aaron said, are you guys crazy? I mean, how many times has God got to provide for you? Just wait. Just do all he said is just wait. He's going to get something good. Just wait. Oh, no. Aaron got caught up into it too, didn't he? Right? Aaron answered them, all right, take off your gold earrings and your wives and from your wives and sons and daughters were wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol in the cast of a shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he says, oh, man, I blew it the first time, but this time, man, this is crazy. We're sinning against God. No, he's still going along with it. Listen to what he said. So he, said, he saw this, and he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. 
So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. Hmm. Then the Lord, I love this, the Lord said to Moses, go down because, watch this, watch this, because your people, <laughs> isn't that a parental thing, right? Husbands and wives, you know we play this game, right? Your kids get on your nerves, you get out of hands while they say, well, that's your kid, right? <laughs> God's doing the same thing, man. And he says to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from, uh, uh, from what I commanded them as if it was really tough to just wait. They've been so quick to turn away from that, okay, and then cast this idol in the shape of a calf, and they, they bowed down to it, they sacrificed to it, and said, these are our God, your gods, O Egypt, brought you out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are what? A stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses, praise God, sought the favor of the Lord his God. He said, oh, Lord, he says, why, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And, and why should the Egyptians say, hey, it was with evil intent. He set them up that he brought them out and to kill them in the mountains and wipe them from the face of the earth. Turn, Moses said, from your fierce anger, God. Relent and don't do the disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I, you, God, will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all their, uh, this land. I promise them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Wow. Folks, I don't know about you. That's just one example. But I would say if ever there was a characteristic, a behavior, an attitude towards the will of God that you never want to emulate, it's right here. <laughs> right? Don't be like this. Do not be like the Israelites, okay? You do not want to do this. And in case you're wondering, kind of a little tip off for me when you interpret the scripture, you look for key words. Okay, and those key words to me are usually words like this, uh, God's anger, uh, his desire to destroy them, that kind of gives it away. Okay, now in all seriousness though, here's the question, why was God so angry with his people? Why were they experiencing his displeasure instead of his peace? Was it because God was doing something wrong? Was it because he didn't know how to provide for them? He, his plan didn't work? No. Listen, what was the posture of the Israelites towards the will of God? What was the word there? Stiff neck. Now, let me break it down for you, okay? Because you're only a stiff neck person. It means they weren't soft. They weren't pliable, rigid, against the will of God, as if he doesn't know what he's doing. It's actually the Hebrew word kasheh. Let's say that. Kasheh, you Hebrew scholars. And it means this, to be stubborn, to be hard, to be obstinate and difficult towards the will of God. And folks, if ever there was a spiritual posture that you do not ever want to have towards the will of God. Because again, when you reject it, you act like you know better than God, which is really accusing God of doing something not good, which is really impugning his character. You wonder why he's a little displeased? That's not a good advertisement. That's not who I am. I am good and merciful and kind, and I long to be compassionate. But look at the scripture. How many times God brings this up? You know, it's, how many studies have you ever heard on stiff neck? But it's all over the Bible, you do not want to emulate this stiff-neckedness towards the will of God. Exodus 33, 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are what? Stiff-necked people. I might destroy you on the way. 
God does not like it. Exodus 33, 5. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you for even a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I'm going to decide what to do with you. Deuteronomy 9, 6. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land. Are you kidding me? I know who you are. You're a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9, 13. And the Lord said to them, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. 2 Kings 7, 14. But they would not listen. And they were stiff-necked as their fathers, who what? Did not trust the Lord their God. If he says something, it's for a good reason. Just do it and have a great day. Listen to him. Don't impugn his character. Don't be stiff-necked. Second Chronicles 38. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. He knows what he's doing. Come to the sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. Nehemiah 9, 16, 29. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. You warned them to return to your law. They became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, though, they turned their back on you they became stiff-necked and refused to listen proverbs 29 1 a man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed it's your fault not god's without remedy jeremiah 19 15 this is what the lord almighty the god of israel says listen i'm going to bring on this city and the villages around it every disaster i pronounced against them why because they are stiff-necked and you would not listen to my words Acts 7, 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, exclamation point, quiet, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit who is what? God. Why? As if he doesn't know what he's doing? Folks, this is just, again, a sampling. I want to drill this point because then I'm going to give you, here's how it's supposed to look like. But I want to drill the negative to you first. This is what it means to be stiff-necked. And specifically, stiff-necked towards the will of God. You never listen, right? You don't do what God's going to do, and it's impugning his character. He, if he asks you to do something, it's for good. Why? Because he's good. And when you refuse to do it, you're acting like he's not good because he doesn't know what he's doing. Excuse me? Whoa. You, here's his peace all day long. But no, your stiff-neckedness, no wonder things are messed up. Okay. And we have actually, I want to break it down to you in vernacular, because that's Old Testament, that's Israel. We have a modern phrase. I think it comes pretty close to being a stiff-necked person, a kasha, okay, a kasha, okay, in the Hebrew there. And that's the people that we say, these are the people who always have to learn things the hard way. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? These are the same people who graduated from the school of hard knocks, right? And who are these people? It's the same attitude that we see in people today, right? You're trying to tell them something good. Hey, don't do this or, or do, do that. And they don't want to listen. No, no. It's always got to be their way, right? They know better than you. They won't listen to nothing. And they always have to get all kinds of pain because they refuse to listen to good advice. Like these people, let's take a look at some modern day stiff necks. Let's take a look.
other way. Other way. Oh, oh, ghost, put your head in the snow. Oh, Oh, now we know how Planet of Apes really started, right? It was from Kashyap people, you know, stiff neck, right? Now, folks, <laughs> that's what you get when you refuse to submit to good advice, right? You just say, but no, no, it's got to be, you know better than them, right? And this is exactly what's going on. God, when he asks us to do something, submit to it. It's good. Why? Because he's good. But you don't want to? Oh, you want to be stiff-necked? Oh, that's what you're going to get. And then we have the audacity to blame our headaches on God? We did it, Okay. That's an unbiblical posture. That's a misplaced posture. So I would say over the next couple of weeks as we finish out our peace study, let's find out what's a biblical posture. It's, it's very much better. How about that for grammar, Bobby? <laughs> All right. Much better, okay? And that's what we're going to do. And we're only going to get to one of them today. And that first thing we need to learn about a biblical posture towards the will of God, if we're going to stop storing up pain and experience God's peace, is we need to have a serious focus on the will of God. Don't be stiff-necked towards it. Have a serious focus on the will of God. And of course, we see this great example on Hill, Jesus. Hello, shocker. We see that. Let's take a look at this text. Luke 22, 39 through 43. Now, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And God asked Jesus to do something a little bit painful. Go to the cross. He's going to ask us sometimes to go through something painful, but he knows what he's doing. Trust him. But listen to Jesus' attitude. He didn't stick his head in the sand, act like it wasn't going to be painful. He knew it. In fact, listen to what he says. Jesus went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw uh, beyond them. He knelt down, and he prayed. He was dealing with reality. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Please, God. Oh, I know it's coming. It's hard. Yet, what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Here's the payoff. What followed immediately afterwards? An angel from heaven appeared to him, Jesus, and strengthened him. Now, folks, I'm telling you, this is key. I've learned this over years as a Christian. What we see, first of all, here, the polar opposite attitude towards the will of God, even though it might not make sense, even though it might incur some pain, the complete polar opposite attitude towards the will of God that the Israelites had, we see in Jesus Christ. What was his attitude towards the will of God? Even when he asked him to do something painful was he stiff-necked was he stubborn was he obstinate no of course he's the son of god that would have been a sin unlike the israelites jesus led the way he says listen god i know this i know i know what's coming i know what i'm going to put through i know what i'm going to get ready to go through they're going to beat me they're going to rip out my beard they're going to spit on me they're going to mock me they're going to literally flog me tear the flesh out of my back my body i'm going to care they're going to they're going to murder me 
God, if you could let this one pass, man, that'd be awesome. But you know what? You're good. Your will is more important than mine because you work all things together for good. And is anybody glad that Jesus submitted to the good will of the Father that day and wasn't stiff-necked? Amen, praise God, we can close in prayer on that, but I'm not. But here's my point. When Je- I'm telling you, it's the same thing with you and I that I've learned over the years. When Jesus made these infamous words, and that's usually where we stop, but what's the payoff? What's the, what followed it afterward? He says, not my will, Father, but yours, your will be done. What happened? An angel came, and he received supernatural strength from God. And I'm telling you, folks, it's the same thing with you and I. When we are soft and pliable, when we have a focus on the will of God, God, I, you're asking me to do something. This is painful. I don't get it. It doesn't, but, but I, I submit to it. That's my focus. I've got to do what you've called me to do. When you do that, Christian, that's your breakthrough point. Did Jesus' circumstances change when he submitted to the will of the Father? No. See, we think peace only comes when we avoid the circumstance. But God will give you supernatural peace in the midst of it if you just submit and trust him. How many times do we spend talking to God about our storms of life and how big they are. I think it's high time we tell our storms how big our God is. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. Sometimes God will calm the storm. Sometimes he won't. He'll let the storm rage, but he will calm his child. Submit to it. Focus on it. No, there's something more important going on here. I trust God. He's good. This is what it means to have a biblical posture. And so surely that's what we're doing, right? We're focusing on God's will. Okay, I mean, I get it. It's kind of painful. Don't really understand it. But you know what, God? I submit my will to you. I I, I trust you. You're doing something good. I may not see it yet, but you're doing something good. No, usually we don't focus on the will of God. We don't focus on God, period. When our hard circumstance comes, where's our focus? It's not on God. It's on what? It's on the circumstance. And then all of a sudden, boom, it gets blown out of proportion. That's all we can think about. And really what we've done at that point, I don't know if you've learned this one, Apparently, I'm still scarred over it. We created a giant life zit. <laughs> See, that's graphic, and that's what I wanted. Let's close in prayer, and we'll answer. No, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. How many of you guys remember the joys of acne in high school? Wasn't that such a special time? Right? And who was your best friend? No, it wasn't that person in high school. It was Mr. Mir, right? Because you always had to do the check. You had to see how it was going on. Okay, trust me. Submit to the illustration. There's good coming from this. Okay, I know it's good. <laughs> but we would always do that, right? And I kid you not, this is one occurrence. I actually learned this lesson before I was even saved about life and focusing on circumstances and how you can blow them out of proportion. And it happened a week before prom. You see, I had a date for prom, but I also had somebody who tagged along, who I now affectionately call Mr. Zip. He made an appearance. He made an appearance a week before prom, and it wasn't on my nose like you would expect. I mean, at least that you could explain away that, hey, I'm turning into a unicorn or something. But no, no, it's a week before prom, right? Prom, prom, what are you expecting for prom? So where in the world of all places, man, do you think Mr. Zip popped out? Right on the lip. Dude, I was devastated. Come on, no, right? And I thought, well, he'll go away in a couple of days. Uh-uh. I mean, I was getting desperate. I mean, it was just, I, I would have, I, I tried band-aids, I tried creams, I would have tried a chainsaw if I thought it would work. <laughs> it wouldn't go away. 
Now, here's my whole point. I had a week to go, right? I'm a guy. So I'm inspecting that goofball thing every single day, whether it's at school or I'm at home or work, even at 7-Eleven, going to the house. And I kill, is it getting bigger? Is it getting, is it going away? Is it getting bigger? That's all I can think about. I'd wake up in the middle of the night. How's he doing? I go to the bathroom. Is it going, is it going away? Oh, it's going to ruin everything. I became absolutely consumed with that thing. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And, and I, was, I was convinced it was the size of Texas. Oh. Now, looking back, it was probably the same size the whole time. But I learned this lesson, Bill. This is powerful. It's a crone proverb. You could use this if you'd like. You ready? The longer you look at a zit, the bigger it becomes. Is that not true? And folks, I'm here to tell you it's the same thing with you and I today as adults. It's the same principle. And I think that we do not see in Jesus is why he had supernatural strength from God, okay? Here's the point. We today, praise God, may not have acne problems anymore. Okay, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Most of us today probably don't have acne problems as adults, okay? But here's my point. But we still have zits of life. You still got things that we get so consumed with and we blow them up to the size of Texas. Maybe your adult zit today is your job. I just got to think this and this and change and they're asking me to do this and I go, it doesn't make sense. Maybe it's your marriage. I do this and I'm not doing this and how this and you just keep looking at it and focus on it. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your kids. I don't know what it is. But listen, we may not have acne, but we still do the same thing today. We focus on our circumstance instead of God. The circumstance probably is how it's always been. But because you keep looking at it, you keep thinking about it, you mull it over in your head again, and again, again, what happens to it? Boom! Totally blown out of proportion. It's not only the opposite of what Jesus did, but it's the exact opposite of what Isaiah says you and I need to do if we're going to maintain God's peace, even though your circumstances may not change. This is a great passage here. Listen to this, okay? Uh, he says, Isaiah 26, verse 3. New God will keep in what? Listen to this. Not just peace. How many guys would like to have peace? Praise God, all two of you. How many guys would like to have perfect peace? Memorize this. He tells you, oh, here's all you got to do. Not just seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, right? You, God, will keep in that state of perfect peace. Here's all you got to do. Number one, all who trust you. Number two, all those whose thoughts are fixed on your life zit. No, fixed on who? God. If you want to experience not just God's peace, I didn't say it, he did. If you want to experience his perfect peace, get it off your situation, man. Get it off your problems. Get it off your difficulties and get it back on God. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. It may change. Quickly, it may not change quickly, but that's not the focus anymore. Your focus is on doing what God said to do, submitting to that. In fact, sometimes you're focusing on God and you're going, well, this ain't worth it. I've been focusing on God, but it just keeps popping in my head. My, my situation's not changing. It's, it's hurting, God. I don't see him. Trust him. Focus on him. Keep doing what he says to do, and the payoff will come if you don't quit. Like these guys found out. This is wow. This is a true life event captured on video. Watch this. Oh, 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 oh. 
Isn't that wild? Remember how it first started? Just a pile of rubble. In fact, they were on top of it. Just, and, and when it first started, how many guys are going, what in the world are they digging up? That didn't seem to make sense. But they kept going, and they kept going with their fingers bloody, and they kept going, and they kept going, and guess what happened? Now it's starting to make sense. And they kept going, and they kept going. How many guys would say that that child's parents glad that those guys didn't peel off one by one and say, that's it, this is a bunch of baloney. I got other stuff to do. This doesn't make sense. I'm going to do it my way, because I know better. I'm telling you. But they refused to do what needed to be done. Everything we go through in life, Christian, God has a great, fantastic purpose. And granted, there are times when you feel like, this doesn't make sense. God, what are you doing? In fact, God, it's starting to hurt. My finger's getting bloody. What's going on? What do you mean when you don't stop? What did Isaiah say? Trust him. Become fixated with God, not your circumstance. Do what God has called you to do in the midst of it, just like Jesus. Bang! Your baby comes forth. It's called peace. 
if you don't quit. Trust him. Fix him. We'll close with this true story. This guy learned the same thing, man. It was during World War II. He's a U.S. Marine, and he was separated from his unit on the Pacific Island. And the fighting had been intense, and, and, but in the smoke and the crossfire, he had lost touch with his comrades. And so now he's alone in the jungle, and he could hear enemy soldiers coming in his direction. So now he's trying to scramble for cover, right? And he found his way up this high ridge to a bunch of uh, area where there was a bunch of different caves, small caves uh, located in the rock there. And so he crawls into one of these caves, and although he's safe for the moment, he realizes that once the enemy soldiers looking for him uh, start to go up the ridge themselves, they're going to quickly search all the caves, and they're going to see him. They're going to kill him. So he prayed, true story. He said, God, listen to this. If it be your will, please protect me. Whatever though your will is, God, I love you. I trust you. So after praying, he lay quietly listening to the enemy, and they were getting closer, sure enough. And he thought, well, I guess God's not going to help me out on this one. And then all of a sudden, he saw a spider. And the spider began to build this web in front of his cave. And he's watching, and he's listening to the enemy, searching for him, and, and they're getting closer, and they're getting closer, and and then the spider, he's layering strand after strand across this guy's cave. And he thought, here I am. I prayed to God. I need a brick wall. And what the Lord sent me was a spider web. He sure has a good sense of humor. So the enemy's drawing closer and closer. And he's watched from the darkness of his hideout. And he can see him now. They're real close to him. They're searching in the other caves right next to him. You know, looking in there. Okay. And then to his amazement, they come up towards his cave. And they glance in the direction of his cave. And all of a sudden, they move on. Suddenly, he realized that the spider web over the entrance of his cave now made it look like nobody had been in there for a long time. And he prayed again. This time, he says, God, would you please forgive me? I had forgotten that in you, a spider's web is stronger than a brick wall. May not make sense now. You may have bloody fingers. And you're saying, you know what? I think I'll do it my way. No. Trust God. He knows what he's doing. He's got a good, fantastic purpose, even though it may seem strange. The thing is, we need to do this and learn this, not after it's all over and we see the good. When do we need to have this biblical posture? Now. Because you could be digging with bloody fingers, listen, in perfect peace. Did you know that? I didn't say it, God did. You could be going through your own garden of Gethsemane. Ah! But still be supernaturally strengthened. You could be hiding out in a cave, feeling like, oh, the world's against me, they're coming again. You could be at perfect peace if you just trust God. Fix your mind on Him. And whatever He asks you to do in the midst of it, be it your job, your marriage, your kids, your health, whatever, because there's always a good reason why he has you there. Do it and enjoy his peace. And be a fantastic witness for Jesus. That's a neat concept. We should try that once in a while. What do you guys think? Maybe we should preach a series on that sometime. Yeah, it's called A Life Worth Living For. Let's be those people. Let's be that church to Las Vegas and around the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, hi. This is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. 
the Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. 
And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell, and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him, to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a of death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599.
or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com, or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.